0: More bungling. All right.
1: Uh, Sorry. Blue skies smiling at me. Nothing but blue skies. Do I see Mm, Bluebirds Singing a song Nothing but bluebirds
2: Good afternoon. You tuned in to the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thank you for joining us today. My guest is fiction writer... Kevin Baker and we'll be talking predominantly about his newest book, Striver's Row, Just Out. It's part of the City of Fire trilogy, the first of which was Dreamland out in nineteen ninety nine, which was named one of the ten best books of nineteen ninety nine by the Christian Science Monitor, followed in two thousand two by Paradise Alley, which was a New York Times bestseller title and um was on the cover of the New York Times Book Review, the front page um, one of the issues, and then selected by Frank McCourt for the Today Show Book Club. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for joining me, Kevin. Oh, Thanks for having me, Ashley. That's great. Well, um, as I mentioned in the little brief enter there, this is part of a trilogy, and I wonder if you would sort All of right. set us up, and, and then we'll have you do, as we always do, read from the book in questions, Driver's Row. But if you'll tell us a little bit about um, the City of Fire trilogy and how...
0: Yeah, it's really a trilogy of a city as much as the characters. So there are characters and descendants of characters who carry over. But it's really a trilogy of New York at three crucial periods. Um, And it's a trilogy of three different groups in Paradise Alley. Irish Catholic immigrants in the period leading up to the Civil War and the draft riots in 1863. And in uh, Dreamland, it is mostly Jewish immigrants in the Triangle and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, uh, as well as the, the development of Coney Island, the first amusement parks in the world. And the Stryver's Row is much more the African-American experience in New York in 1943, a pivotal year right in the middle of the war.
2: And so, and you, you mentioned that the, the cast of characters is, I mean, it's, it's about New York as much as it is about the characters, right. but you actually start *Driver's Row with um, a, a convention from drama. You start it with a cast of characters.
0: Yes, Yep. Yeah, I, I put in the uh, the dramatis personae in, in all of them so that people can keep them straight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have to give them, you know, I also have a glossary in the back so people can decipher the uh, the slang of the time. I like to try to, you know, give the readers as much of a hand as possible.
2: And one of the char- one of the main characters in this book, Jonah Dove, is mm-hmm. the grandson of one of the characters from Paradise Alley, the second book. So you, they do sort That's of weave correct. through.
0: Yeah, uh, Jonah's uh, grandfather and father are in Paradise Alley. Billy Dove, which was the actual name of one of the very first escaped slaves to live in Central Park in New York in a... Black village that used to be there, um, and his son Milton Dove were in Paradise Alley, and now in Strivers Row, Milton is still alive. He's in his 90s, uh, and he has started one of the leading churches in Harlem, and Jonah has taken has inherited the pulpit from him, although he feels uh, vastly uh, inadequate to that task.
2: Well, you start the book with the character Malcolm, and I wonder if you would right. read a little bit from the book, and, and then we'll talk about the ways in which you are weaving historical, real historical folks in with the the fictional narrative.
0: Sure. This is uh, Malcolm Little, the other main protagonist, uh, later to be better known as Malcolm X. And this is him uh, thinking back when he's in his uh, stepsister's house in, um, in Boston, thinking back on... Uh, "'events that took place in Michigan a little while before. "'He thought about the rabbits sometimes, "'lying awake at night in the little room in Ella's house under the eaves. "'It had been back in West Lansing when he was twelve years old, "'just after his mother had taken ill and they had all been split up. "'A Sunday afternoon in the late fall, nearly winter, "'the smell of something burning off in the distance.' the men and boys walking through the yellowed grass, holding the straining dogs tight on their leashes. Malcolm was walking with Mr. Gohanis and Big Boy, dangling the twenty-two off his hip, trying to whip it all about like he'd seen the gunfighters do in the western serials. He held it to his eye and aimed it here, there, even at the backs of the men around him, until one of them turned and caught him at it. "'You watch that gun, boy,' he scolded. "'Don't you be pointing it at nobody.' Malcolm had dropped his head down, holding the gun steadier, glancing up furtively now at the other men to see if they had noticed his shame. All of them darker than he was, their skin the color of burnt coffee or railroad coal, faces lined and creased like worn car seats. Wearing their field overalls and work boots, redolent with the scent of men's sweat and dirt some of them with their boys next to them, wearing their hand, handed-down wearing their handed down overalls, faces exactly the same, only smoother, as if all the creases had been ironed out. Their ragged hair knotted up in burrs and tangles, like the farmers they were, and would always be. "'Get ready now,' Mr. Gohannes told him, his voice urgent, though still kindly. "'Right about here!' The men stopped at the edge of an open field. At its far end, Malcolm could make out a tangled clump of bent scrub trees and thorn bushes. The men looked at each other, a few of them nodding solemnly. Then they let the dogs go and began to fan out, kneeling in the high grass. Here they come now. The loose dogs had run straight toward the thicket, baying and scuffling their way in past the lowered tree branches. There was silence for a few long moments, then the renewed sound of pounding feet as the first rabbits flew out from the bushes. "'Lean, gray, winter hares leaping ahead with their eyes wide "'and their long ears back, the dogs scrambling after them. "'Easy now,' the man nearest to Malcolm whispered tenderly to his son, "'a boy younger than Malcolm was, toting a shotgun. "'Let them come back!' "'Leaving the hound still immersed in the brambles, "'the hares made a wide, panicked bolt around the perimeter of the field.' "'running so fast and hard that Malcolm thought they must surely escape, "'the only sound their powerful, widened winter feet "'thumping softly over the grass. "'He could not understand why the men hadn't fired, "'all these old, slow, black men still staring out from the bushes, "'and he rose as if to run after the rabbits. "'But then he felt Mr. Gahannes's hand on his arm, "'pulling him back down, "'and sure enough the hares turned and headed back "'toward their hidey-holes in the thicket. "'Now!' the man next to him exclaimed and his boy fired the crude old shotgun. The blast knocked him flat on his back, but the birdshot picked off one of the galloping hares in midair, flipping his thin gray rabbit body head over heels, leaving him to twitch and heave on the ground.
2: Thank you. Now, you you said that the the character Malcolm Little is later to be known as Malcolm X, um, a quite famous historical figure. Um, yeah. How do you work with um, fictional characters and, and made-up characters in the context of, um, this trilogy is historical fiction, what we call historical right. fiction. Um, how do you think about what you get, uh, sort of allegiance to the truth versus um, artistic license and imaginative um,
0: Yeah, that's a good question, particularly in the uh, year of Jim Fry here. Um, And in this book, I have, you know, in in the previous books, I have real historical characters appear, but they're not really major characters. This is the first time I'm really trying to take on a major American character in in Malcolm X. Um, But what I wanted to do was take, you know, what really struck me and inspired this book to a great degree was Malcolm's autobiography, which is a great, iconic American text, of course. But it's also a classic conversion text and a bid for power. You know, he's saying in this that I have been the lowest of the low. I have, you know, been down to the very depths of the black experience in America. And therefore, I should be all the more entitled. My rise has been all the more dramatic. I should be all the more entitled to be a leader in the black civil rights movement, which is when he's dictating the book in the mid-60s. But there were also all kinds of interesting themes, you know, and so to a certain degree, the book, well, you know, it has many real things about his life in it. To a certain degree, it's a piece of political propaganda. And I wanted to try to delve beneath it. I was using fiction, if you will, to get at the real facts, kind of a reversal of, uh, of Jim Fry. Um, and there are you know, many interesting things. You know, for instance, there's some of these wild exaggerations. One point he uh, talks about the very first time he goes dancing, at the Roseland State Ballroom in, uh, in Boston. And he and his date are so great, they clear the dance floor. Everybody else stands around admiring them. And at the end of this... Um, Duke Ellington himself gets up and bows to them in homage. You know, um, you know, I don't think he Malcolm really believed this even when he uh, when he wrote it. You know, um, on the you know on the other hand, there's very interesting themes through it that I think are maybe more unconscious. And this is one of the ones I was trying to get at with the rabbits. It's a real scene in the autobiography, and he talks about going rabbit hunting with Mr. Gohanus, one of his foster fathers, and all these black men out in Michigan, and how he, how smart he is. He's the only one able to figure out, young Malcolm, that the rabbits are going to turn around. So he goes up ahead of the others eventually, which is what happens in the scene, and, and picks off the rabbits. And he was saying, you know, in the autobiography he writes about how, you know, these people just didn't, these other men just didn't pick it up. You know, and and, and throughout it there's this constant sort of theme in the, in the autobiography of Malcolm outsmarting or patronizing generally older, darker men. Um... You know, and it's like, I mean, I imagine in reality, the men were very aware, you know, these are guys who've probably been hunting rabbits for 50 years, you know, (laughs) they knew what rabbits were going to do. I imagine they very much let him go up there as this kid to to shoot them. But it really, you know, as this kid who had just lost his mother and, you know, was out in this foster home. um, But it struck me as very intriguing that Malcolm, you know, hadn't picked that up himself, you know, the unconsciousness of that himself and what that meant
2: and because he was breaking code when he went round the rabbits and it wasn't until in this particular scene right. that you write that that um it wasn't until they realized that oh his poor dead mother you know, that that they they did, right. that, that they let him continue to do it they yeah. were going to put him in his place um and he he's completely unaware in this scene that yeah that he was either going to be put in, put in his place or that he was breaking right and and, 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 code. and
0: apparently in in real life he was unaware you know to the day he died he you know right up to the to the end he thought he had just outwitted these uh you know these older black guys you know and and i found it very interesting that whole that whole undercurrent of his bid for leadership too you know that he was he was the smartest of uh of all
2: now, in this one, you mentioned this is the first time you've taken on an historical character as your main character. Right. Um, you, you not. He's not only one of the main characters in *Strivers Row*, but you begin the book there. Right. Um, did was that intent? Did you sort of architect that from the beginning, or as you wrote the series, did? Um, it emerged that this is where you wanted to take this particular book. Had you sort of planned to keep your historical characters as minor characters, and then, ta-da, here we are with it? Yeah, I hadn't.
0: You know, I hadn't planned it out very well as a trilogy from the start, which is probably probably part of the problem. In Dreamland, the first one I wrote, um, it, it was only when I was almost almost through with Dreamland, the first one I wrote, that I felt this could really be a trilogy. Um, and while there's much more of a conscious carryover from Paradise Alley to Strivers Row. Uh, no i hadn't i hadn 't planned like okay now i 'll start the you know this thing I, I did know though that I was going to write a book about African Americans, and I knew that it was going to be centered around the autobiography, because that was the initial hook that had had it got me in and I found it was a fascinating text that was
2: the initial hook for starva 's Road. the initial hook Road, for yeah, the Star okay. Road, yeah. and what was the initial hook for the, for the first oh, book the King initial one?
0: hook for the first one was there 's a terrific Rick burns documentary uh, just over not, not the New York documentary, but a terrific separate one, about a little over an hour. On Coney Island uh, just an amazing documentary chess footage of Dreamland and Luna Park and Steeplechase which were the original three amusement parks pretty much in the world and they were just incredibly beautiful and weird places compared to what we think of as an amusement park now and looking back on it I f- you know I was fascinated by this I looked into it and found there had been a lot of terrific nonfiction descriptions of these places but no you know no one had really written fiction about them uh, this is, you know, the era like 1900 to 1911, you know. And so I really wanted to uh, to write about that then. And then that hooked up with, you know, the Triangle Fire, which happens also in 1911. And seemed a kind of perfect, you know, uh, perfect joining, you know. I mean, Coney Island was called to a certain degree the City of Fire because mm-hmm. these parks were, as before, you know, neon lights. And these parks are basically just lined with, like, millions and millions of light bulbs that go all around these... Um, uh, these Ferris wheels and turrets and these very this very exotic architecture that's out there, um, and at the same time you had this real city of you know the city of fire in New York this kind of place that was constantly burning and being rebuilt and burning with energy and and uh, industrial fire you know um, and uh, you know when, and you have it culminates in the Triangle Fire which is mm-hmm. a major turning point in um, American political life and, and labor.
2: Well, that's a good place to take a short break. We'll stop there. Um, You're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Kevin Baker, and we're talking about his most recent novel, Striver's Row, which is the concluding episode or Mm -hmm. um, book in what has come to be known as the City of Fire trilogy. We'll be right back.
1: If you let me go Life would lose its touch What would I be Without you There's no place for me Without you Never let me go I'd be so lost If you went away There'd be a thousand
2: We're back. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN, FM, and 88.3. Eighty-eight point three. My guest today is writer Kevin Baker, and we're talking about Striver's Row and the City of Fire trilogy. Um, you're with us from New York, um, right. but you are not from New York, is that right?
0: I was born in New Jersey, grew up in Massachusetts, oh. but I've uh, lived in New York now for almost thirty years. So okay, so you can you can guess I'm uh, a New Yorker. Yeah, uh, both both my parents were born in the city. Uh, my mother was born in Washington Heights. Excuse me. My father was born in the Bronx. So. um yeah, so I have kind of a you can kind of call a background there. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so.
2: but you, you, because you um, use Malcolm X as your main character in Strivers Row, you start out in Michigan a little bit, and so it's right. nice to have you here. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: And there are several other scenes in Michigan too, as I go into uh, well, actually there are a lot of scenes in Michigan as I talk about his life, uh-huh. growing up, and then uh, also uh, flashbacks to um, Elijah Muhammad and the start of the Wallace D. Fard and the start of the Nation of Islam in Detroit.
2: Wow. Um, well, let's talk about a little bit about beginnings and the starts. Um, let's talk about, um, you began the City Fire trilogy because you were fascinated with Coney Island and, and the fact that, and, Mm -hmm. and the, the amusement parks out there and the fact that folks had written nonfiction but nonfiction. Um, you work with three ethnic groups in, in painting this portrait of the city, um, African Americans, Jewish Americans, and Irish Americans. Um, Will you talk a little bit about? And you sort of you focus on is it? um, So in Strivers Row, it's mostly African American. Right. Um, In Dreamland, that's Uh, uh, Jewish Jewish American, and then um, Paradise Alley is Irish American. -American, there's a lot of scholarship now, or there's a mm-hmm. beginning to be a lot of scholarship about the ways in which these three ethnic groups are in conversation with each other um, yeah. or not. And I'm wondering if that's sort of coincidental that you've come to those three, or ha- yeah. or um, if you are in conversation with the, the academic work that's, that's happening. For example, George Bornstein here in the Department of English is very interested in working oh, okay. with these three um, ethnic groups in his um, current scholarship.
0: They really struck me as the kind of dominant ethnic groups. I mean, you could easily write a trilogy, too, about uh, the Italian, Chinese, and German immigrant experiences, which would also be, you know, fascinating. But, you know, I think you'd be hard-pressed to come up with three groups who had more of an influence on American culture, politics, everything, than... Irish Jews blacks you know um and a lot of and because they were all these urban peoples you know settled in cities such as New York a lot of interaction both for better or worse between them um you know it it really I think the common theme in this trilogy is the different folk ways with which these groups force their way into what was a very Protestant, very Anglo country originally that, that didn't want them here by any means, any of them, um, even though they had brought Africans <laughs> over, you know, right from the beginning, uh, they, you know, they did not want these other people here. and They certainly didn't want them to have a voice in what was going on. I think it's one of the great stories of democracy, maybe the story as to how they each kind of use these different ways to force their force their way in and uh, insist on having a voice.
2: When you talk about, in, your, in thinking about um, how you would begin or work through this trilogy, yeah. the terrible crucible of democracy, Right. right. Um, will you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, it was a phrase I used in Paradise Alley because the, you know, the, the crucible in that was that you had these um, Irish immigrants who were over here. Um, they had not been... Well treated coming over, they, you know they were despised for being Catholic, for being poor, uh, for being you know these country bumpkins from Ireland. They're in New York, and you have the Civil War that that opens up here. And while millions of Irish-Americans went off and volunteered and fought very well and died for the Union, um, a lot of them, you know, really resented this war. They didn't feel this was their fight. They were very apprehensive about any war that might free a lot of black slaves. You know, they, they had taken, often by force, the menial jobs in New York and many other cities from African-Americans. they had come in there. I mean, there were about 11,000 blacks in uh, New York before the Civil War. All of a sudden, 250,000 Irish arrived. And they kind of literally kicked these people out of these jobs and, and took them over. So they are very apprehensive about a huge number of potentially freed slaves coming up and competing with them for, for jobs. Uh, they're very poor, and, you know, going off to war at that time, is, there's no social welfare state. Going off to the war is a huge hardship for their families, you know. They're, the Union has all these incompetent generals who are getting them slaughtered. And then, 1863, the Union, you know, desperate, puts in a draft. And not only a draft, but one, this is the first draft, in military draft in American history. You know, people don't even think it's constitutional, necessarily. And on top of this, you can buy your way out of the draft for $300, something that it's not much for a rich man, but maybe two years' salary for a laboring man at the time. So this is really outrageous, and they're just incensed by this, and this leads to the draft riot. The, to this day, the bloodiest riot in American history breaks out in the streets of New York, Um, Irish lead this, they rampage up and down, What starts out as a riot just against the draft, quickly turns into a massive Manhattan-wide lynching party in which they attack any blacks they can find who they blame for the war and commit horrible atrocities against them. Um, And this was all kind of foreseen, by this guy, Edmund Ruffin, who was one of the intellectual, if you can call it intellectual, but the intellectual forefathers of the Confederacy, who thought that, you know, they would come to war and the Union would, you know, try to raise these armies, but the revolt of the urban masses would burn down, uh, you know, burning down places like New York and that would end the North's ability to conduct the war. I wrote a whole book about this. Very prescient, up to the fact that the riot comes. And the police, who are already predominantly Irish, and a lot of the soldiers brought back into the city, actually do not go over to the rioters. Instead, they shoot them down in the street. You know, and, th- and this is this is the terrible crucible of democracy. You know, shooting your friends and neighbors in the street potentially for this this ideal of this of this country of this republic. Um, but you know, they did it. They saved the country as long as well as the fact that they then allowed blacks to to enlist as soldiers, which they hadn't before that. Um, and this, you know, this saves the Union, and Edmund Ruffin ends up uh, blowing his brains out in the last days of the Confederacy. So, oh, uh, but yeah, a so, story. so, you know, so it's, a, but it really, you know, it is a bloody story and an unpleasant story in some ways, but it really is the story of, you know, the, the America we take for granted, at least the America mm-hmm. we want to have, a multicultural, multiracial place with justice for all, you know, didn't necessarily have to come about. It was brought about by very active struggle. Over
2: the entire history of the country, and yeah. it's still going on. Yeah,
0: it, oh, it is. Democracy is struggle, and a much harder struggle than we like to think. Now, um, you know, we like to think everybody just came here, worked really hard, and got ahead. And uh, no, <laughs> they they had to force their way in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, often often violently.
2: Well, in Strivers' Row, that centers around the Harlem riots in 1943, right in the middle of World right. War II. Right. Um, will you talk a little bit about that as a as the sort of pivotal event? to center this book around
0: yeah by 43 things are really coming to a boil in the black community in harlem um you have, uh, all this stuff going on. We're engaged in what was supposed to be a great worldwide battle for, for human dignity, you know, for, for equal rights and equal liberties. And, but at the same time, millions of young black men are being drafted. They're being sent down to these basic training camps, usually in the South. They're put under white officers who are often abusive. Whenever they venture into the local town on like a weekend pass, they're often, um, beaten up, uh, arrested, even shot and killed by local white lawmen who were incensed at the very idea of a black man with a gun. Um, when they, they're, you know... They have managed to finally um, you know, win a guarantee that they'll be able to w- be allowed to work in the defense industry and in all these jobs that are coming open now, and the, and the nation needs them. But whenever they get into these jobs, uh, you know, very often white workers will walk out and strike. They'll riot. They'll attack them. You know, riots go on in these Liberty Ship plants, ironically enough, all over the country. Um, you know, and other riots start breaking out. In Detroit, there's a huge riot when they try to integrate uh, housing that's been built for defense workers. White riot. They're backed by the police force. They're pulling black people at random off of streetcars and beating them. You know, 60 people die in this. You know, I'm sorry, 34 people die in this this riot. Like 600 are injured. Um, so, you know, and, and news of all of this kind of keeps trickling back into Harlem like salt into an open wound. You know. Um,
2: now at this time, is Harlem um, a lot of Jewish? Uh people moved from the Lower East Side up to Harlem. Yeah. By this time, is Harlem settled by both Jews and blacks? Or?
0: Oh, yeah. Harlem Harlem is a multiracial place. Okay. I mean, but it, the, the communities are pretty segregated, but they're multi, there's a large Jewish and Italian population in, in East Harlem. I, uh, in 1943? Yeah. I mean, Mayor uh, Fiorello LaGuardia, uh, the mayor, lived until right around that time when they finally convinced him to move into Gracie Mansion, the mayor's designated home. He lived in a walk-up on 115th Street in East Harlem, you know. Um, so, you know, this is, there are white people and you know, Harlem doesn't really become kind of all black until after the Second World War um, and, and, you know, today, East Harlem is, is mostly Hispanic and right. Harlem General is becoming whiter. But, um, so yeah, so this is Harlem in 43 and the, and, you know, some good things are happening. I mean, it's an amazingly vibrant, interesting place. You have, you know you can go see like the greatest music ever you know in somebody's apartment this is this is the uniqueness of it you know you have all these great black musicians jazz musicians and they get finished with their gigs maybe in the white clubs downtown and they come up to somebody's rent party where they really play you know they play against each other in these cutting sessions you know and you can pay like 50 cents go into somebody's apartment and see this Oh, and at the
2: Apollo, it was very inexpensive. You could go all day. There were shows running from sort of noon to, <coughs> noon to two or three, four in the morning, no? Mm. At that time as well.
0: Oh, yeah. There are great clubs. There are, you know, you can go to the Savoy and all this, you know, the Smalls Paradise. <coughs> Sorry. You can go to all these, you know, terrific places and, and, and see this music for very little money. Um, but... You know, all these reports are coming back from the sons and husbands and brothers and boyfriends of these uh, of people in Harlem. They're writing letters back. All these news reports are coming back to the radio and the newspapers of all these attacks on blacks that are going on around the country. Um, and on top of this, you know, the military authorities are kind of really afraid of white. all these white servicemen going to Harlem. They even shut down the Savoy Ballroom, the greatest of the ballrooms, basically because they're afraid of race mixing. You know, so, you know, blacks are still second-class citizens, even in a city like New York. You know, they're still not allowed to go into most of the best restaurants or hotels in the city. They're still being treated in this kind of Jim Crow manner, still harassed by the police. Um, and as the summer continues and the city authorities get more and more nervous about things that are going on, they put more and more police into Harlem. So, but you have all these guys here on these, like, you know, on their motorcycles riding through Harlem, just their motors kind of droning on and just really building the tension. So, you know, the tension's building steadily as as the summer goes on. And finally, finally it bursts. And that's that's, uh, what my book's concerned with. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: Now, do you, when you're. Thinking about how to do that, let's go go back to the very beginning of the book again. I want to sort of circle back to, sure. the, to the beginning. S- since you, when you started out the trilogy, you weren't sort of thinking about writing a trilogy, and then you realize, well, there's, oh, there's more, right? And then I'll do right. This you yeah, know, we've got to go the whole connecting parts. Yeah. Got to go the, the whole nine yards here. Um, so by the time you get to Starting at Strivers Row, there's a whole bunch that precedes it, but right. this is a discrete book, and it starts. Yeah, on it, it, its own and ends on its own and can be right. read independent of the, independently of the others. Yes, it
0: certainly can. Yeah.
2: How do you think then about starting the book? Um, do you think differently rather about starting this book as opposed to say starting the one in the middle or the one at the beginning?
0: Right. I had you know I had to think differently more about this one. I have to kind of give kind of a you know not the same description but kind of a flashback to some of the events that happened in Paradise Alley, particularly because they affect. Some of, the characters uh, affect were in? some of the characters here and something like where they're coming from, such as how um, Milton Dove, who was a boy in Paradise Alley, trying to defend his, his family against this white lynch mob, how he has uh, founded this whole church in Harlem of, of escaped slaves and kind of led it up through from the Greenwich Village up to Harlem, which, which is what kind of the exodus the whole black community made in New York. So I have kind of the, the background on that. But, uh, but it's you know it's, it's but it's really set, and there are other kind of flashbacks and visions that that uh, Malcolm is having. But it is set mostly in that that summer of '43.
2: So the readers who have read all three books will get the pleasure of of the ones that precede. But but readers who haven't can start here as I did.
0: Yeah, I I hope I hope uh, they will they will you know, not be too taken aback by that. Um, yeah, I mean, you can, it can certainly be read as a discreet book. Um, and th- for those who have read the previous ones, there are a couple of appearances by other, you know, previous characters and or their descendants that I won't, I won't give away. I won't but, give away. But anyway. <laughs>
2: well, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Um, you're tuned into The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Kevin Baker. We're talking about Striver's Row and the City of Fire trilogy.
1: You see, I'm no good without you.
2: back. You're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM, and our Reminds guest today is Kevin Baker. We're talking about uh, history and history and how it works into his books, um, which center around um, some very important and and big historical moments in the city of New York, right. <laughs> Harlem <laughs> riots in 1943 yeah. being the the centerpiece for the center historical event for Strivers Row. As an historical Fiction writer, I wonder if you 'll tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in writing historical fiction as opposed to um, some other kind of fiction or non fiction or why why and how have you spent the last uh, well, let's see. I'm guessing we've got seven or eight or ten years of your life writing these these three oh, books. These three,
0: about, about 11 years. Eleven, 11 years. 12 years, yeah.
2: Okay. So 11 or 12 years immersed in, in this particular material in, in right. a, a city you call home, um, even though your parents are from New York and you've kind of grown up in the area and spent the last 30 years living in New York. Um How and why historical fiction, and and, um, do you write other kinds of things as well?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, I I started off writing professionally when I was 13 years old, writing a a schoolboy sports for a local newspaper. Had to learn to type to to keep the job. Um, And I've done all kinds of writing over the years. Um, I consider myself primarily, you know, I have a a column for American Heritage Magazine, History Magazine, um, you know, do a bunch of journalism from time to time. I consider myself primarily a novelist, though. And yet, it, uh, my career has kind of, I guess, drifted into historical fiction. I, You know, I, I kind of wish it wasn't even considered a separate uh, genre. I feel that's really, um, you know, too bad. Um, Do you I, think
2: that's I, a marketing sort of category? Or is yeah. it a, is it a, is a um, reader category?
0: No, it, 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 you know, it has become a marketing category. And, and I can understand why it has, because there's plenty of really bad, you know, cliched historical fiction out there. Um. Unfortunately, and, and it's become kind of a kind of a slum here, kind of a ghetto, of literature. But there's a lot but, of
2: celebrated historical but, fiction as well, including your books,
0: right? Well, you know, I mean, yeah. people like Doctor O, I think does this better than you know any of us in the genre. And uh, you know, I think there are some you know terrific historical. Right? I, I just wish there wasn't kind of that separation. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the ancient Greeks didn't think of the Iliad and the Odyssey as historical fiction; they thought of them as you know foundation myths of their society, which they built upon. You know, and they they were they were it was quite easy for them to refer to this to go back and forth to this past you know i wish we had kind of that same um facility with the past (coughs) sorry um you know it's i mean america's always been a, a, a very future looking country for better or worse you know i mean thank goodness we don't have um graffiti saying uh you know, remember the Battle of the Boyne or the the Field of Crows, like there are in other cultures. But at the same time, I think we we kind of overlook how much of our, our we we overlook a lot of the past that could really inform us.
2: Well, you mentioned in this interview earlier today when we were talking about the crucible, the terrible crucible of democracy, how little we sort of um, remember or or note about what's gone into the making of democracy and what continues to go into the making of democracy. Do you think that if folks were more aware of um, the footsteps um, we're following in our historical past, that um, that would lead us to different decisions or or ways of approaching living in this country now and and continuing to form this democracy? And do you think that your fiction is sort of geared to kind of... um, ring those bells to get folks moved in that direction, or
0: yeah, I mean you you want to hope at least that people will um, you know take lessons from history and work on them and you know and unfortunately and unfortunately, often they just take the history they want, um, but you know for instance, like we were mentioning this riot here in one thousand nine hundred and forty three this uh, black riot in Harlem, this is practically the first riot of any kind in America by black people. There have been a, another smaller one in Harlem in one thousand nine hundred and thirty five um, but this is really the first kind of riot that's kind of, uh, you know, a black rebellion. You know, before that, uh, almost all riots in American history had been w- white people, usually attacking black people or other mm-hmm. ethnic groups. Um, you know, and the, these are to the, those riots were to this are to this day the bloodiest riots in American history. The draft riots, the attack on in Tulsa after the First World War, the attack on East St. Louis in 1917. Um and we've kind of eradicated that out of our our history. You know, it's another way of kind of feeling guilt-free at all times about the past, you know. Uh, at the same point, you know, I, I wanted to kind of get across in, in all these books, that, you know, what a real struggle it was in, in immigration, particularly. You know, particularly in Dreamland, I talk about kind of what a, you know, it was certainly a great thing that the Jewish populations of um, Russia and Eastern Europe uh, got up and went to America, a lot of them, you know, save their lives and their lives of their descendants and they certainly have had a much better time in America than they would have otherwise but it was a very hard transition you know this meant really even if you're coming from a country where you had been oppressed for you know centuries um, it meant leaving behind ancient customs and ways of living Um, and it meant coming to this country where you know your your kids americanized before you it meant uh you know where you worked yourself to death in a factory where maybe your husband left you to you know because he couldn't take the strain anymore i mean these were a lot of the immigrant experience was about hardship and loss and you know ultimately it was triumphant but i think we have forgotten just you know how much it took and how much you know people uh, needed to work together co- collectively, how much they needed a helping hand, you know, particularly white America. We don't like to really think that anybody ever helped us out at all, you know, and the, the real story is kind of a lot of these white immigrant groups came here, worked like crazy for generations, and got nowhere until we developed, you know, the now much maligned the social welfare state, you know, and so, uh, you know, I, I would like to hope that would inform us if, if enough people know that story.
2: Israel Zangwal's play, The Melting Pot, sort of talks, uh, deals with some of these issues as well, and deals with some of the immigrant groups that right, you're dealing with, right. too. Um, and part of the loss is a, lo- is a loss of cultural heritage. You, you, yeah. Um, in addition to just a struggle to survive. Um, with the emergence of Malcolm X, we see a, 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 an emergence of an a, of a African American movement that, that is about embracing or finding or. Um, uh, recreating or creating a culture um, and standing up for a lot of things that um, black people in this country w- couldn't stand up for prior to um, the movements that were started here. How does that play out in the other ethnic groups mm-hmm. that you deal with in the in the other books in, this, in the series? Are, do you work with... Um, Identity and identity formation in all of the books.
0: That that definitely gets into it. I mean, it of course is much more complicated in the black experience. And Strivers Row is set on the very eve of the modern civil rights movement. Um, You know, the fact that blacks were allowed into the defense plants was due to a Philip Randolph's threat to conduct the first march on Washington back in 1942. Uh, So, you know, but but there are these different strands in the civil rights movement. And Malcolm, of course, represents the uh, black nationalism, the idea of, you know, you don't want to deal with us fine. We will set up our own culture and defend it, you know, by any means necessary, but we will live as a separate people. Within America, Jonah Dove represents much more kind of the King strand, if you will, mm-hmm. the idea that you know, we will we will adamantly insist on our rights, um, you know, in as peaceful a nature as possible. We will insist on them, but we will insist on being a part of this society of integration. Um, there's also a third strand that's represented in a, in a lesser degree from. Uh, Jonah's sister, Sophia, who has simply gone out and decided to pass as white right. in, in Greenwich Villages. And that was that's something really not talked about by anybody, but was part of the race heritage in America, too. There were people who just, you know, understandably couldn't deal with being these kind of second-class citizens anymore, and if they were light enough, went out and you know, pretended to be white people, um, which also kind of puts the lie to the whole ridiculous structure of race. Well, and uh, it
2: blows open the one-drop rule. Um, like, right, are you white right. or are you black? How do you figure that out? And, and
0: right, it's just, you know, just is an it absurd...
2: phenotype thing. or is it...
0: Yeah, is it, you know, it's just an absurd construction, you know, it's a, a, you know, a cultural construction, really. Um, so that's part of it, you know. But, th- you know, to a lesser degree, this was encountered, of course, by all these different peoples, you know, coming over here. Um, how American were you going to be? And again, in the case of Paradise Alley, it was, well, you know, are you an Irishman in New York or are you an American? And if you're an American, here's this gun and you got to shoot your friend and neighbor over there who's, you know, threatening to burn down the city. Um, you know, in, uh, in Dreamland, it's so much these, these young, young women, you know, uh, these teenage girls who are working in these factories and they start, um, one of the great labor unions in in history, the ILGWU, you know, out of their refusal to kind of you know take what they're getting anymore, but that you know that's 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 their process of Americanization, and it's you know it's thrilling, it's, it's exhilarating, but it's also leaving behind all these other things. You know, in Dreamland, there's a, a character who's a um, a father who's a who's a scholar over in over in Ukraine, and you know where this was very much in, in that culture there in the old world where uh, jewish men weren't allowed to work in all kinds of professions uh combined with a huge emphasis and respect for reverence for scholarship uh there were all these guys like him who were these kind of yeshiva buckers for you know for for years they just became these scholars and were worshipped well then they come to america and all of a sudden you know that's all gone that culture of change you have to scramble to make a living and these people have no role so he's you know he's terribly embittered by it this this went on a lot you know it's you know so you have it's this thing that's very empowering for a lot of these women, who you know had knew how to work and had a skill they could use in America in the garment factories, and then at the same point you have this, you know, th- these men who feel suddenly useless. You know, they're they're rabbis who don't have a congregation, they're scholars who don't have a uh, yeshiva to go to. Um, so there's that, you know, kind of constant, constant transformation and how how people have to deal with it. You know, we're we're a, we're a nation of improvisers essentially. Yes. <laughs>
2: That's a good way to put it. Interesting. Um, well, we're about, we're about to the end of our time, and I want to ask you, before we sign off, what you're working on now, what's what's next?
0: I have a contract to write a nonfiction uh, history of New York City baseball, so I'm looking forward to that as a little break, but I'm sure I'll be back to uh, novels and historical novels on, on New York and elsewhere uh, before too long.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, my guest today has been Kevin Baker. We've been talking about his most recent novel, Striver's Row, just out in hardback. And it's part of the City of Fire trilogy, Dreamland being the first, Paradise Alley the second, and right. now Striver's Row. Right. And you're on tour promoting the book, going round and round. I'm
0: on tour, uh, going through the heartland. (laughs) (laughs) Going through the heartland, Mm -hmm. great.
2: Well, it was lovely that you could stop by on your way through this part of the
0: heartland. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Ashley.
2: You've been tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'd like to thank you for joining us today, and I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing a wonderful job, as always. Please stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And thanks also to the folks who have um, donated during our pledge